My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm so glad that you're part of church here today. Those of you here in this room, those of you out in Facebook land, next door in venue, watching this someday on the worldwide internet. So uh, it is awesome to be part of church here. And uh, let me ask you something. Do you remember way back when, when you were on the schoolyard and it came time to pick teams for some particular game? Remember how that went down, how that works? Some of you are like, yeah, what's the big deal? Because you were the ones picking, okay? Uh, the rest of us were the pickies, and there was many anxious moments, uh, agony, wondering when your name would be called. And if you happen to be at the very bottom of that kind of list and the captains were arguing over, you know, who had to take you, then that's traumatic. I mean, it is. You still have scar tissue to this day. And your desirability had more to do with just your ability. Are you following me? Because there was, you know, your popularity, your looks, basically how you ranked in the schoolyard pecking order. And it would be great if we left all that behind when we moved on in life, but the fact of the matter is, is that's pretty much the way of the world, but it is not to be the way of the church. That's what we're going to see today. As we continue in this series, Everyday Sacred, it's based in the New Testament letter of James. Today we arrive at chapter 2, which begins like this. Please follow along as I read. James writes, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Favoritism will be James' theme for the next 12 verses, which is notable because if you've read this letter, you know that James tends to kind of spend like three, four verses on one subject, and then he hops over to another one, and that's just kind of his style. But here he's going to camp out, which is a clue to us, this really matters to God. In fact, fascinating, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 10, it's, it's a significant chapter because God is reviewing his dealings with Israel with Moses, and then God says this to Moses starting at verse 17. He says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Now think about this for a moment. Of all the things that God could say about himself, he felt it was very important on that short list of characteristics is he does not show partiality or favoritism. And of course, he wants the same to be true of his people. One time, uh, somewhat of a celebrity pastor named Francis Chan, you've probably heard of him. Uh, on one particular weekend, he set up a, a secret camera, a hidden camera in the lobby of the church. And in the frame of the lens, there's, there's Francis and a, this eight-foot table. And he's sitting on one end, and there's this, about this 15, 16-year-old kid sitting on the other end. The kid's closest to the entrance. 
and they have a little numerical counter underneath each of them that's going to keep track of how many times each one of them are greeted as people enter into the church. So sure enough, right as it begins, first person just blows right by the kid and goes to Francis Chan, so that's one zero, and then two zero, three zero, four zero. It's, it's, it's as if this, this teenage boy is invisible to people as they walk in. Right around you know, six zero, uh, <laughs> one couple stops and engages this, this young man, but it's to have him take a picture of them with Francis Chan. <laughs> so now it keeps creeping up. Uh, one person does greet the young man. Uh, one of the ushers, so we got to, you know, give it up for the ushers. They, they did their job that day. We love you guys, gals. It gets to about 11-1, stops right there. And the last person is actually one of the other pastors at the church and his wife. They just fly right by this young man and like, hey, let's go chat up Francis. We never get to see him. And uh, that was where it ends. I thought that was such a great idea. I said, let's do that here at Twin Lakes Church. So you want to see the results? No, you don't. Because uh, I didn't really do that. But what if I had? What if we would have parked Renee out there, some kid from our youth group? I wonder if the outcome would be a whole lot different than it was in Francis Chance Church. Who, who knows? But why do we do this? Why are we prone to favoring some people over others? Three things came to mind as I thought about this this week. You might want to write these down. Uh, first of all, no surprise, appearance. Appearance. In fact, the word for favoritism that James uses literally means to accept a face. To accept a face. In other words, the moment we see someone, we make snap judgments based on beauty, ethnicity, age, gender, what we perceive about their economic status. In fact, according to an article I read in Business Insider this week, and in these types of articles, even this type of research, it's not hard to, to find. Uh, in this article, they say that attractive people are perceived by others to be healthier and more intelligent. Uh, they're more persuasive, they're paid more, they're more likely to win an election. In fact, attractive people are even considered more likable and trustworthy, and it has just only to do with their face. As Scripture says, man looks on the outward appearance, right? But the Lord looks on the heart. So there's appearance and then there's ability, right? People who excel in music or art or business or athletics, you know, we, we prize these people. In fact, <laughs> Kevin Durant, next year, some team, and the Warriors are hoping that it will be them, they will pay him close to $40 million next year, and he is not likely to play a single game. He's just going to be rehabbing that Achilles tendon. But that's how much we value ability in our culture. Third reason I think we favor others over, some over others is affluence, right? Wealth. And I want you to see how James illustrates this in the next couple verses. It says, starting at verse 2, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, 
And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and have become judges with evil thoughts? Now, let me give you a little bit of context there. In Roman society, you did not just wear whatever you felt like wearing. Okay, that was not allowed. Your clothing was like a uniform that signified your rank in their society, where you, you landed on the rungs, so to speak. In fact, even the, the gold ring that James mentions there is significant because on the, the Roman org chart, at the very top was the emperor, and only the emperor could wear a purple toga, and then there were the senators, and they had their special outfit as well, and then right beneath the senators was a group called the equestrians. This was the wealthy merchant class, and traditionally, only these three groups could wear a gold ring in public. If you were beneath that, you wore an iron ring or some kind of lesser metal. And so James says, you know, this guy, he not only has a gold ring signifying his, his power, but his clothes are, are uh, fine. And he uses a word in the original that means radiant. You know, we get our word lamp from it. It's, it's, it's like they're bright and shiny. So, you know, he's, he's rich and he's powerful and he comes in. It's like, hey, while you sit here, we, this is the best seat in the house. Other guy, dirty, disheveled. Yeah, hey, buddy, you, know, you, you can sit on the floor, whatever. Let's get back to worship, guys. Here we go. And James is like, time out. Wait a minute. Jesus didn't have a gold ring or shiny clothes. Are you going to make him sit on the floor? And listen, here's why favoritism is such a big deal. And it has to do with, with really the root cause, which is that when we show favoritism, it's because we glorify the wrong things. At the heart of this issue is really misdirected glory. In fact, it's no accident, I don't think, that James refers to Jesus as our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He only refers to Jesus by name two times in this entire letter. So I think it's very intentional that he mentions his glory because on one hand, you know, we believe in this glorious God, this magnificent being who's radiant and, and dwells in unimaginable glory. And yet, James is like, suddenly you're fawning over some human being? In church, no less? I mean, isn't that akin to idolatry? You remember what the serpent said to Eve when he said, you know, you could eat that fruit, no big deal. And when you do, you will become like who? God. In other words, you can get in on the glory. We crave that. In fact, we're drawn to, you know, the beautiful, the rich, the talented, because we're hoping some of that glory will rub off, rub off on us, right? And then at the same time, our gospel tells us that we are all 
equally in need of God's grace. That the, the, the ground at the cross is absolutely level. So doesn't favoritism actually betray the gospel itself? And not only that, but is it just possible that, that the, the rich person or the poor person, when they come into church, that they are longing that someone will treat them differently than they get treated out in the world, rich or poor? Is it possible that they actually need to be treated differently than they are in the world? Now, are you getting a sense of why this is such a big deal in this letter? True confession. When I was preparing for this, this message earlier in the week, if you would have asked me on like Monday morning, you know, Mark, do you think that you struggle with this issue that James is talking about? That it, you're kind of prone to getting starstruck or, or easily impressed. I would have said no. I said, nah, I don't think so. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> and then I was thinking this week, I thought back to a couple years ago when I, along with fellow pastor Dave Hicks here at Twin Lakes, uh, we had the opportunity to go to Super Bowl 50. Remember, it was right over at Levi Stadium. And not just as ordinary spectators. No, no, no. We got to go as members of the crew for NFL films, which, you know, made us very special. In fact, I'll, I'll show you how special. Uh, they, they, they reinforce this for you in case you're in doubt. You, you'll see in this next photograph. This is Dave. And myself, we're about to go into the Super Bowl, begin our job there that day. Notice in the picture I'm wearing this. It's called a credential. It's got my picture on it. Shiny gold name tag that says Mark on it. And uh, this pretty much means you get to go anywhere you want. In fact, I took this picture of the field as I was about to walk out on it because I could. <laughs> you know? Oh, and I, I, I forgot to... The, it, you also get, you know, this hat, gold emblem on it, and get to wear a T-shirt that tells everybody else, you're an important person right here, NFL Films crew. You know how much I enjoyed standing there on the sideline looking at people that paid like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to be right there and go, yeah, I got a better seat than you, pal. <laughs> and I'm getting paid. Minimum wage, but hey, <laughs> look where I am. So we're getting ready, and Dave starts snapping pictures. He takes a picture of Boomer Esiason, who's doing some pregame thing, and Usher, like right there, he's in front of him, and Peyton Manning when he starts to warm up. And it's, it's actually kind of a no-no for the crew to be taking pictures of celebrities. But if you know anything about Dave Hicks, telling him he cannot do something is a sure indicator that he will. So he's just like, like this. And one of our tasks was to film Cam Newton when he came out to, to warm up. I mean, look at this guy. I mean, even his, his warm-up outfit is so impressive. It's this, this Superman gold shoes. He's like 10 feet tall. He's, he's handsome, he's rich, it's like, wow, man, that's, that's a man. <laughs> At one point, the newly crowned Miss Universe is standing two feet in front of me, facing me, looking at me like, will, will you just stand there and be a buffer for me so the fans behind you on the rail can't get too close? And I look at her and I go, 
Yes, your highness, I will do that for you. <laughs> seconds into that, like three, four seconds into that, Kevin Durant walks up right behind her, looks me right in the eyes. In that moment, I looked into his soul. I did. In fact, I used my best Jedi mind trick. And I went, you will sign with the Warriors. And you will stay there the rest of your career. So, if he does, just remember where that came from. So, no. I have a point. But first I have to say, you know, poor Dave. I mean, he just got so caught up in all this. It was... It was so sad. So pray for him. That's, that's all I can say. <laughs> okay, it wasn't just him. Uh, here's what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, on one hand, it's just entertainment. It's fun. It was an amazing opportunity, kind of a celebrity fest. But here's the thing. Our celebrity culture can and, in fact, does infect the church. And it happens whenever we end up glorifying the wrong things. Seeing people the way that the world sees them. And you know how this goes. It's like, you know, skinny or fat, you know, tall or short, old or young, married, single, divorced, dark skin, light skin, Republican, Democrat, independent, minivan, BMW. The list just goes on and on and on. I mean, think about it. What if God thought this way? What if God created all these kooky categories? Aren't you glad that with Jesus Christ, everybody matters, period? Aren't you glad? I sure am. Man, praise the Lord. And to keep us on the, the same page as Jesus, <laughs> James gives us three things in the following verses that will help anchor our hearts and our perspectives. Three things that really matter to God. And the first one is this, it's faith. Faith. In view of the way that the poor are being treated in the churches that James was writing to, he says, starting at verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Now, he's not saying every single poor person has this amazing faith, but the first Christians, many if not most, were indeed poor. They were slaves, they were women, they were people marginalized in Roman society. And they're the same people, not always, but often are more open to God because they have nowhere else to turn. I mean, our high schoolers will be going down to Mexico on Wednesday of this week. And when they're down there, as always, uh, they'll be surrounded by people who are not afraid to talk about faith. Those conversations flow very easily. There'll be lots of joy, lots of laughter. Our kids will come back so blessed. But you know what? We can, sometimes we can romanticize this because the reality is, you know, 
It isn't easy to have faith in a good God when life is always hard. You know, when you're always struggling to survive. It's so much easier to say, oh, God is good when life is too. And yet some of the, the most beautiful Christians you will ever encounter are found in the poorest settings. I remember years ago, went to Honduras on a short-term missions trip with some of you here at Twin Lakes Church. And uh, Honduras has a smaller economy than Guatemala, than El Salvador, a very poor country. And one evening, each of us on the team, we each got to go individually to the home of our Honduran brothers and sisters where we would uh, join them for a meal that they prepared for us. And uh, it was amazing because this little town is out in the middle of nowhere, Honduras. And not only was it remote, but about nine months prior to that, uh, a Category 5 hurricane, Hurricane Mitch, had just come through and obliterated Honduras. Uh, their banana plantations, which is their major crop, were just flattened, and no one had bothered yet to even replant them. Most of the people that we were with worked for these companies, and so their economies in the tank, they have no work, and I'm sitting at the dinner table, and I realize that they have sacrificed, butchered one of their precious chickens, their protein source, to make dinner for me. And when I sit at the table, they put this whole platter of chicken and rice in front of me. And they will not touch it. They will not serve themselves until they are convinced that I'm full. I have to, I have to, I have to put on an act like I can't eat anymore because across the table, it's not just the adults. It's, it's children with empty stomachs patiently waiting until they know their guest has been satisfied. Now, you talk about sacrificial love, self-giving love. I will never forget that, nor will I forget the passion of their worship. I mean, this little church just didn't have anything, and yet when they would sing, there was such joy, such gratitude. <laughs> it was embarrassing because... One of my jobs was to lead our group. We were going to sing a song for them at the beginning of their worship service. And I pull out my guitar, and, and we're singing a song. It's that song, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. Remember, that was a popular song years ago. And here we are, you know, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your glory or however it goes. You know? <laughs> and that, we finished, like, oh, that was pretty good, you know. They start singing, oh my goodness, oh. I mean, they just blew the roof off the place. That, the walls are shaking. They've got, it, it was so beautiful, and yet they had the worst sound system I've ever seen in my life. It had four whole channels, which means like if, if someone's got to do like a guitar solo or something like that, they like pull out one of the mic cables and plug in that, and some guy, that's how they mix, like physically, <laughs> plugging in cables and disconnecting them, and yet it was amazing. And James is saying, you're going to tell people like that to sit on the floor? Really? I mean, it's no wonder. He says, but you have dishonored the poor. And by the way, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? 
Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? He's saying, guys, you're sucking up to the very people who are oppressing you. Now, of course, he's painting with a broad brush here. But generally speaking, it is the rich that are able to lawyer up, right? It's the rich that are in a position to withhold wages. It is the elites who sometimes look down their noses on so-called simple folks, and not just them, but at times, even their God. The God who said, in Luke 6, Jesus turns to his followers and says, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Compared to them, let's be very clear, we're all rich. We are unimaginably wealthy compared to the people Jesus said that to, which, which means we got to be really, you know, aware that, that what matters to God, you know, isn't how many followers you have on social media or your LinkedIn profile or how white your teeth are. What matters to God is what's going on in here. Your faith, how you respond to God and how that's reflected, and how you treat others. This is why James keeps saying in various ways throughout this letter, it's like, you know, what you actually believe will be revealed in how you actually live. That brings us to this next thing that really matters, love, love. Picking up at verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you, you what, church? You sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, of course, you know, he's not saying you're not going to connect with some people more than others. You have things in common. He's not saying everyone has to be equally your best friend. You don't have to like everyone the same, but you, you and I, we are called to love everyone the same. He references this, what he calls the royal law of Scripture. And what, he, what does he do? He, he, quotes his, he quotes Jesus. He quotes the Old Testament that says, love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not rocket science. Love others the way that you want to be loved. Forgive others the way you want and need to be forgiven. And in context here, treat people just the way you want to be treated. How do I want to be treated? Well, that's how I treat others. That's the goal. And as I reflected on this, I thought, so easy to compartmentalize our lives or excuse ourselves. In this instance, you know, favoritism, I mean, come on. Is that really such a big deal? Why does he keep going on and on about this? And the interesting thing is that James anticipates this exact line of thinking. And he says in verses 10 and 11, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you should not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. In other words... 
you're still a murderer. You may not be other things, but you're, you're a murderer. And so we can tell ourselves all day long, well, hey, at least I don't do that. Or I'm not in with that group. I'm not like that guy. And meanwhile, James is reminding us that every time it, it, it amounts to a, a violation of the law of love. When we sin, we violate love. That's why Jesus was able to boil down over 600 commandments in the Old Testament to two when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then remarkably, right before he's going to be arrested in his last words before his crucifixion to his disciples, he boils it down to even one command in John 16, 34, when he says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He's like, that's it, guys. I'm giving you one commandment, and favoritism breaks it every single time. Every time. And so let me ask you, do you want to be rich in the things that matter to God? You want a heart that beats and sink with Jesus? But ask him. Ask him to fill your heart with faith, with love, and also with mercy. You know who the most merciful people are in life? They are people who are keenly aware of how much mercy they have received. That's who. And along these lines, verses 12 and 13. It says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's unpack this a little bit. Speak and act. Well, that pretty much involves everything we do, right? (laughs) And do that as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now, what in the world is that? James doesn't define it for us. He assumes that his original audience understood what he was talking about. But here we are, you know, we're 2,000 years removed from that. And so my best guess is that James is referring to something that Paul would also talk about in Galatians 1, or Galatians 5, excuse me, verse 1, where he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Notice a similar emphasis on freedom. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And in context, Paul's talking about being justified by grace and no longer resisting the impulse or the coercion to submit oneself underneath the law as if that would justify me. Because it never will. It will condemn you. Now let's go back to James, verses 12 and 13. What I think he's saying here is, you know, judging people solely on externals, well, that's pretty much what the religious hypocrites did, the ones that Jesus calls out. It's all just about a show. It's all about a, an act, what people can just see from the outside. But when we come under the grace and mercy, what he calls the law that gives freedom, I mean, we live in that reality, and in doing so, how dare we deny anyone else the same. And so live your life before the one true 
judge, the one who saves us, who justifies us, and yes, as James reminds us, the one to whom we will someday give an account. And that's not going to be where he's like, you're in or out, if you're a Christian. That's been settled on the cross. But it will be a review of what did you do with the new life that I gave you? And one of the things Jesus talks about in the Gospels that he commends, that he rewards, acts of mercy. So, man, you want to be rich in anything? Be rich in mercy because, as James tells us, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's probably the shortest definition of the Gospel right there. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So be rich in it. In fact, as I wrap up, uh, I will share. I was kind of daydreaming this week, and it's a, it's a daydream I've had before. And it goes like this. Wouldn't it be awesome if every single one of us in church was in a recovery group? Like every single one of us, because, hey, after all, we're all cineholics. So why do we say, well, you got to go to recovery, but no, not me, man. I mean, think about how that would just be so radical for the church. And the reason I say this is because my friends in recovery, I'm, I'm, I'm just so often impressed by their warmth, their love, their grace, and their mercy that they share so freely. Friday night, I was at the graduation celebration for the Freedom Women's Center. It was right next door in Munsky Hall. Freedom's Women's Center is this awesome ministry. It's a recovery ministry, a resident recovery ministry here in town. And uh, I tell you that you can see uh, the women that participate there with the pink shirts in front. And talk about experiencing the kingdom of God. These dear sisters in Christ, they are so grateful for what Jesus is doing in their life and the the mercy that they are receiving. And man, when they started worshiping, it was like being in Honduras again. There was something in the atmosphere that was, it was just dripping. The room was drenched in mercy. I, I, I think, you know, if there is such a thing as a 100% favoritism-free zone, like on this planet, it was in that room on Friday night. It was just thick with mercy. And I'll tell you why. It's because these dear sisters are living in the reality of what Scripture says in places like Titus three, four, and five, where it says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So as we prepare our hearts to go to prayer, let me ask you this. Who do you need to extend mercy to? Is there someone in your life, maybe they've offended you or or hurt you in some way, and the temptation is just to hold on to that. You know, I'm just going to kind of let you squirm for a while. Wow, aren't you glad God doesn't do that to you? Who do you need to extend mercy to? Who do you need to show love to, to notice 
to, to, to show them that they are welcome. Because I'm convinced, for all of us, myself included, I'm convinced that there's someone in our lives who needs to know that they matter to God. And, and it just might, that little light switch might begin to come on when they realize how much they matter to us. You know what I'm saying? Well, let's pray towards that end. Heavenly Father, We place ourselves before you and we ask that, Lord, you would do what you do in our, in our lives, that you would make us more and more like Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I'm reminded of a scripture in Jeremiah that says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man in his strength or the rich man, let him not boast in his riches, but let those who boast, boast in the Lord that they know and understand his ways. God, we want to just boast in you today. We want to boast in your mercy, your love, the fact that we can trust you. And, and that's hard at times. Thinking of families in this church this week who have experienced great griefs. Lord, would you... To smother them with your mercy and your love. Comfort them as only you can. And may we radiate that same heart for those in this room, for those in our neighborhoods, for those in this community, Lord. May this church be so full of your spirit and your love and your heart for people that are surrounding community, they just can't ignore it starts with each one of us. And so have your way in our hearts and our lives today, Lord. Whether we need forgiveness, whether we need encouragement, whether we need strength, whether we need motivation, whatever it might be, Lord, meet us in that place of need, I pray. I ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen, amen.